What's up everyone? Welcome back for another video. Today I'm excited to share with you a great Q&A. This was a really great Q&A. We covered a lot of topics including talking about uh, the future of recording, the future of the record industry, kind of what the role of record companies are in 2020, talking about a lot about uh, trombone, trombone flexibility, trying to my greater view on that, talking about picking the right teacher, talking about picking the right college, a really, really great detailed Q&A uh, with lots of questions from a lot of great trombonists who uh, logged on to ask some questions. So if you want to tune in, it's every Friday. We stream live on Facebook and Instagram around 1 p.m. Eastern, and uh, sometimes it's a little different, but usually every week at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, we are logging on to take your questions. So thanks for being here. Make sure you're subscribed to this channel uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, and, and uh, you don't want to miss any of these videos. So. Hope you enjoy and uh, go down into the description and you can see all the questions You can see the time code. You can scroll through uh, the timeline here and uh, check out what uh, what happens when in the description. But uh, so, you know, watch your favorite questions and then uh, let us know what you think. So drop in a comment, drop in a question down into the comments. Let us know what we should be covering uh, this week. So question of today is what questions do you have? Uh, drop your questions in. Uh, they could be about trombone. They could be about uh, the record industry in 2020, or jazz record industry, uh, or music business, and uh, maybe just jazz in general. So that's kind of what we what we cover each and every Friday. So uh, thanks for being here. Enjoy the Q and A. Why did I choose the trombone? The trombone. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, Drew, have you been talking to Steve Teray? That's how he talk. That's how he says the trombone. Um, well, it's a good question. Um, there's kind of a twofold, twofold question. One is that I was tall for my age, and so they put me on trombone because I had long arms. I was a big kid. That's how it started. But then um, growing up in Rochester, New York, oh, this is from Trevor. You didn't choose it. It chose you, right? Um, growing up in Rochester, that's where Eastman is. Um, and Eastman has a really great trombone choir tradition. So I ended up hearing the Eastman Trombone Choir when I was young. There's a lot of trombone events like in the area. And uh, yeah, same as John Fedjock, except John is from Ohio and went to Eastman. But uh, I actually grew up in Rochester, fortunately or unfortunately for me. Just kidding. Um, but yeah, same as John Fedjock. And um, yeah, I heard the trombone choir and I kind of fell in love with the instrument. I wanted to play classical music first. Um, I thought I was going to do that, but then in high school, when I couldn't make it into the uh, to the youth symphony, I kind of realized maybe that wasn't in the cards, wasn't my strength, which I think is true because I don't really like to play the same thing the same way twice. <laughs> so it kind of fits jazz a lot better than it does uh, preparing orchestral excerpts, for example. Uh, I'm sure anyone of you out there that does orchestral stuff knows it's like you're trying to do it the same way every time. Perfect, right? Eh, I'm not so much for perfection. I'm more for like expression and experimentation. That's kind of why I. Uh, uh, that's kind of why I um, got into trombone was uh, uh, through Eastman Trombone Choir and uh, fell in love with the sound. My neighbors from when I was a kid will verify that I used to blast like uh, some trombone records really loud in the neighborhood, and they probably didn't really like it. <laughs> Um, I used to play. Uh, oh, maybe some of you know this—the London trombone sound. That was a that was a London uh, re CD record uh, of a lot of like pop covers. I used to blast that pretty loud. I was I'm just kind of a nerd, really. That's kind of 
the nature of this whole thing. Alton asks, when's your next album coming out? The fifth album uh, was Cast of Characters, and that came out in February. That was number five. Uh, I don't know when my next album is coming out. I thought I was going to do a quarantine kind of remote album. Uh, I'm not so sure if I want to do that anymore. I changed my mind a lot recently. Um, So I don't know what I'm going to do there. Um, I might... I had another idea this morning, actually, to do something else. So I might do that something else first. But uh, I don't know when the next album's coming out. Uh, hopefully I can get something together before February so that uh, I don't uh, go more than a year without putting something out. But uh, it says you better put a bunch of bass bone on the next album. I don't really play bass bone, Cam. Uh, do you want to play bass trombone? I don't. I don't. It's not really my, my cup of tea. I'll defer to people that really, really... Uh, study bass trombone and play bass trombone full-time, you know? I mean, I played enough bass trombone to play on Broadway and stuff like that, but I'm not going to, like, shred on bass trombone. I can play some loud low notes and uh, some basic kind of stuff, but I would not call myself a bass trombonist. That, uh, maybe we'll get some bass trombone on there. Maybe I'll get Chris Glassman or one of my students uh, to play some bass trombone on it. I was actually thinking of doing some trombone ensemble stuff uh, anyway, so... Uh, maybe Reggie Chapman, maybe he'll play some bass trombone, maybe all of the above, who knows, I keep changing, like I said, I keep changing my mind about what I want to do, uh, because like it's so much, oops, so much time involved at this point about like how to, about doing any of these like remote collaborations and stuff, I'm used to like going in the studio and just like making a record in a day, and like that's how I like to do it, like concentrated amount of time and like go and do it and get it done, not so much the like slow grind back and forth, people sending files and all that. Not that I wouldn't do it because I totally could and would, but it's kind of like a drag to me to have to, to do, do it that way. I really like doing it all at once. I'm, I always do stuff in batches. You know, I talk to my students about it all the time, like batching tasks, batching content creation to our artists when we're doing consulting. Like don't just make one video. You know, make a bunch of videos. Like, if you've noticed, we do these live streams, right? And so on Fridays, I do a live stream for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it ends up being. And then we cut the interesting questions down uh, and put them onto Instagram, for example, as individual questions with an answer. And then we also take all the junk out, all the times where I say something dumb or uh, we ask like a different a question that has nothing to do with anything. And then we edit it out and post it on YouTube. So, you take, you know, one thing, one amount of time, one hour, 45 minutes, and then you can make it into a whole bunch of content. So that's what I mean by like batching tasks together. So <clears throat> that's that's kind of the whole name of the game. So anyway, that goes back to the virtual thing. I don't think I ever answered uh, Morisov about Nils Langren. I saw him a couple times at the Rochester uh, Rochester Jazz Festival when I was growing up. He came and played that festival, which is a great outdoor, well, it's a great festival and has a lot of outdoor stages and they used to, to come and play. He played, he uses really interesting like effects and stuff. And I was really into that at the time. And, um, you know, there's like endless records of him and he's, he's great, man. He's a great experimenter on the trombone, man. So, which is cool. And I love that. So it says what exercise improves flexibility? Um, well, that's interesting. That allows me to kind of go into <clears throat> one of the teaching philosophies that I have is that um, flexibility needs to apply to more than just talking about lip trills, not lip trills, lip flexibilities, right? So the concept of flexibility really has to do with flexibility is really about 
being flexible in all areas of trombone playing, not just playing lip slurs, right? So flexibility to me is the same. I think about the same way you think about flexibility in terms of like preparing for an athletic endeavor, meaning like you, you stretch, you try to get flexible so that you can execute what you need to execute at the moment it needs to be executed, meaning like you need to do a big leap, you need to articulate fast or slow, smooth, um, all of that stuff is actually all the same to me. And um, so I really like to think about flexibility in terms of everything combined. That being said, part of that is obviously lip flexibility. And so I like to do, if you check out the, my book, Get Ahead, uh, there's a, for a longer explanation of this if you want. But um, so there's like linear flexibilities where you go like ba 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 that kind of thing, right? We have we've done those, and then or like I like to go out from the middle, out from the middle. So I go ba 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 like that. Trombone positions just out one at a time, and uh, so if you take that linear as linear, and then the next one is like going back and forth. So you practice like your flexibility back and forth between like two partials. This like was something that Wycliffe Gordon had me work on a lot where you go by like interval size. So like a minor third, major third, perfect fourth, perfect, perfect fifth. Uh, and then you can do a sixth, like F to D and then you can do an octave, octaves. And then you can do it in the upper register and lower register. And then the third kind of flexibility that I think is like wide interval flexibility where if you do like, um, what is that? Marsteller exercise where you go like A, E, C sharp, F, D, B flat, A, A, uh, E, A, C sharp, E, D, F, B flat, A. I know it's kind of weird to just say all those random letters, but there's, you can do that or just play like an open position, B flat, F, D, triad. Those are some different um, exercises you could do to improve your flexibility. So those are the three types of lip flexibility that I think about. Um, but ultimately... Flexibility to me needs to apply to your entire concept, not just like one tiny thing. Everybody says flexibility, oh, it's lip slurs. Well, yeah, but you also need to be able to execute what you need to execute. So you need to put more things into the flexibility category. I put like articulating um, over wide intervals into that category. I put like fast and slow articulation, smooth and, smooth and fast slide. Um, all of that stuff goes into flexibility for me. Flexibility is a big, big category, man. So I uh, I hope that helps. Which fusion of genres do you prefer to play? I prefer to play acoustic jazz music, uh, really, which is basically just kind of building on the traditions of people like, you know, John Coltrane, Wayne Shorter, you know, that kind of thing, Joe Henderson, but trombone stuff, you know, so... There's a lot of people doing that kind of thing. So, but if it's got to be a fusion of genres, um, I'm mostly interested in genres of music that are kind of open, open-ended to, you know, different improvisational um, landscapes. I guess. So I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a particular genre, but that's a kind of like a my open-mindedness to different ideas and open-mindedness to different sounds. Uh, I sat, it kind of come, came from, you know, like I kind of got into like electronic kind of drum and bass kind of stuff. I sat, I played a, uh, one time in, um, where was I? Berlin, I think. Berlin. I, I sat in with Jojo Mayer and his band, Nerve. And that was super fun. That was really interesting. 
just to kind of like play a totally different thing and just to kind of paint like maybe like a sonic tapestry rather than thinking about like, oh, here's the melody and then here's blowing and then whatever. So that's kind of where I was going with the streams of consciousness thing is kind of like making some like little tracks and just kind of playing over them that aren't necessarily like swing, you know. Um, but I love to just play tunes also. So I don't know if that really answers your question, Leo, but it's, I don't, I guess I don't really care about genres. You know, I say this a lot, but Joe Lovano, I took it from Joe Lovano who took it from somebody else. I'm sure, um, that like jazz is not a what, you know, it's a how it's like a set. It's a mindset. It's an approach to the music. It's an open-mindedness. It's putting improvisation and creating in the moment at the forefront you know, rather than like perfectly executing something like the perfect, perfect execution, like really doesn't interest me at all. Um, someone that sends in like a pre-screening tape to UNT, that's like everything is perfect, but it has no soul and vibe. Like I probably am not going to really respond to that because it's like, what are you going to do with that? Perfection is boring. You know, it's, it, and it doesn't really exist anyway, but all right. Professor, cast of characters question. I think you once mentioned the album, or at least several tracks, were centered around two different triads. Is that right? And if so, which ones? Yeah, you can hear it right at the beginning of the very first track. So you hear the first thing you hear on the record, on the first tune. The first tune is um, The Sorcerer, not The Sorcerer, A Sorcerer. The Sorcerer is Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock. Uh, is a D triad and a D flat triad, and you hear it in third inversion, B da da da, and, and then you hear the the next triad in um, first inversion. So it's like A D F sharp, because so, the first note you hear is F sharp is the melody note, F sharp E D. I'm singing the wrong notes probably, but then C C sharp or D D flat is the next note after that. So those are the two triads, and the whole record kind of stemmed from those ideas. I mean, there's other stuff in there. I kind of used like, um, there's an approach or a set of approaches compositionally that kind of come from the school of Bob Rookmeyer, which I got from Dave Ravello, who's a student of Bob's uh, and was a professor of mine at Eastman. And it's kind of like a, a system of generating ideas from a small amount of information. So um, it's like that little phrase was something that I just I straight up just heard Chick Corea play. I was like, that's killing. What is that sound? And found that. And then it's like, all right, let's see what we can create here. And it ended up as all the different tunes. And I mean, some of them are just like loosely around it. Like someone's like, oh, it's in D flat or it's in D was like a jumping off point. And then I used maybe like it's two steps removed sometimes. Like there was the set one of like there was like the original idea and then there's a set of ideas that are from the original idea, but then there's like iterations on this, this like first set of ideas, if that makes sense. So there's like two levels. It's like twice removed, I guess, from the original idea, but it all came from, that's what I, that's what I try to talk about is that like it came from a process where it's like, here's the idea, here's a bunch of stuff that has to do exactly with that idea. And then it's like, what can we do with that idea after that? And like, where, do, where can we go? How can you reinterpret you know, D and D flat as key centers, as improvisational focus points, as starting pitches, as bass notes, as as triads over different different bass notes, all that stuff. Are there any living musicians who you haven't played with that you would like to, like up, like to? Yes, uh, that's a great question. There's lots. I mean, there's, a, there's some that I've played with like one time, you know, or like in passing that I'd like to play with again. That would be nice. Like, uh, 
Lincoln Center Band with Winton and all those characters. That would be an ama- great to get to do that again. That's been a while since I've been able to do that. Um, I've always wanted to play with Chick Corea. Never got to play with Chick Corea. And Herbie Hancock, those two. Pat Metheny, I would have loved to play with Brecker. Like, these are my kind of heroes that I looked up to when I was starting to play, you know. Uh, Brad Meldow, uh, Joshua Redman, um, Miguel Zanon. These are a lot of people that I would love to play their music and play in their bands, you know. Christian McBride played with in passing, but would love to play with that band again. Um, there's lots of people, DJ. Lots and lots of people. I wish I could say that I had played with everyone, you know, that I could just play with whomever, whenever. But, you know, things ebb and flow, as you know. So those are some. But really, you know, like Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock have been at the top of the list for a long time. And I really like Lionel Lueke. I like his new record. Man, if you guys haven't checked out his new record, it's called HH. It's for Herbie Hancock. So, um that's really killing. I was listening to it yesterday. Uh, let's see. Alton says, are you using GoPros? I've never used a GoPro. I don't have a GoPro. I have a Canon camera. Uh, I usually hire a film crew whenever I'm doing a project like that, um, mostly because it's too much to manage when you're playing all of that kind of stuff. Personally, that's what I think. So I would rather hire a film crew and pay out the extra money. And the GoPro, I mean, the GoPro is cool. Like, it's fine. If you want that kind of, like, action cam look, you want that kind of, like, behind-the-scenes look, you want kind of that. But in terms of, like, really documenting, it's nice to have still angles and a moving angle, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I would, if you're going to make a record, I would, you know, find out, at least get someone to run the cameras. It's just, it's too much to run it all by yourself. I've tried it. I've done it. You can do it. It's so it's kind of stressful, but that's why I also have a producer now when I make a record. So, do you have any notable aha moments in your playing or lessons you had wished you learned sooner? An aha moment was when I realized I couldn't please everyone, and that I couldn't be perfect at everything and be the best at everything. That didn't happen until ma- I was in my master's program or later, for sure. Um, you can't you can't please uh, all of the different band leaders. You know, you can only be the best at being yourself. And so like there was a friend of mine, I love I love him to death. And he was, he's just, in terms of like sounding like J.J. Johnson, he's way better than me at it. Even though I also love J.J. Johnson as an example, you know, and like I realized at a certain point, like, oh, there's things that I can do that he can't do, which maybe is like more modern stuff or like sight reading, hard, really hard stuff, just like different skills, you know? And um, you can't be everything for everyone. So figuring out kind of what your strengths are, always trying to get better at your weaknesses, but making sure you know what your strengths are so you can try to play into them and put yourself in a situation where you can take advantage of your strengths. You know, if I was trying to like focus on modern music, but then try to get gigs playing traditional jazz, uh, it just doesn't fit, you know. So kind of finding your place is one uh, and another aha moment was when I realized I didn't like switching horns or I didn't want to be a doubler. That was one, an aha moment where I was like, I'm not going to do this. It's not my, not what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on being an improviser and being a soloist and band leader and side person that plays in groups that emphasize improvisation, not groups that necessarily are like playing, playing uh, music for events and this kind of thing. Like 
which means that there's like an economic ceiling perhaps to that approach. But um, I don't know. There's just a thing that uh, was definitely an aha moment, an aha moment trying to be deliberate about the decisions you make, you know? And he asked, do you write for Big Band? We'll be hearing Nick Finzer Big Band album uh, sometime. I was, I was also, I said uh, a little while ago, I do have a kind of file full of um, charts, but I haven't gotten around to really refining them and making them uh, ready for recording. But I should probably do that at some point. And I will at some point. I just don't know when that point is going to be. Um, there's some videos I've done some, there's some videos of some of the charts that I, that are okay, but, uh, I need to go back and re revise. I'm really bad. Here's another aha moment for you. I realize I'm really bad at revising. I would rather start from scratch than revise. Why? I don't know, but, uh, I'd rather write a new chart than go back and like redo an old one. Um, I don't know why, maybe just a sense of progress or something like that. Just like abandon, abandon the crap and move forward. Jen, where do you see the role of record labels for jazz music in 2020 in comparison to being an independent artist? Is a booking agent enough? Um, well, all of those different things are part of a larger vision or a larger team. Um, the role of a record label in 2020 is, um, well, I can, I can't tell you where I, I can't like, foresee the future or really talk about anyone else but my experience so i'll just tell you what i think but um, record labels serve to to be a curation engine i see as kind of what's happened in the music industry kind of in a cyclical we're in the middle of a, a part of a cycle right so as different technologies have come out it's kind of gone through different parts of a cycle where uh, music, the power in music has kind of consolidated and deconsolidated a couple different times. Like, so you started and it was really expensive to record music at the beginning, right? And it was really expensive. And then it became less expensive as it was easier to make records. Different people wanted different music. As the radio comes in to play, more music needs to be made. As different genres kind of split off, more labels, more different people. Uh, people buying records and then, okay, now we have tapes and CDs and all of that happens and all the power gets concentrated into the labels, right? And then, then here comes digital, breaks everything and um, it flattens out the whole industry, meaning that anyone now, the cost of entry is so low that now there's more music than ever out there into the industry. So, um, it always has been and probably will continue to be a hits industry, just like venture capital, where it's like most of the money is made in 1% or less of the releases in terms of the entire scope of the entire industry, right? That doesn't, that's not to say you can't build for yourself a, a, a career that is sustainable for you, but in terms of like a huge company, like $100,000 on your project is nothing. Like that's nothing to a multi-billion dollar company, definitely in the nine digits at least, um, like Universal and Warner and and uh, all those big ones. So the role I feel, sorry, that was all preamble, but the role that I feel that record labels have now in 2020 is to curate again uh, for, for artists. So things, like I said, it flattened out and dispersed. Everything went everywhere. A lot of the companies went out of business, especially the smaller ones. And now there's more boutique little kind of 
labels little that kind of curate a certain part of the scene like pie recordings is like doing mostly like ex uh, adventurous experimental avant-garde jazz whatever you know there's labels like positone that's like super straight ahead uh only straight ahead kind of a lot of um there's variance within it but just like very straight ahead there's smoke sessions records that's doing um like the legends like they're focusing on doing legends that they also then can have at the club um smoke in new york uh and then blue note has been moving more towards like a that hip-hop jazz fusion kind of vibe and so everyone is kind of you know making their own little mark and creating their own brand you know so the role of the label is to curate into a community you know that's what i'm trying to do with our label is curate the artist in such a way you know maybe it's geographic a little bit maybe it's um, you know, I always say there's there's nothing in particular that I'm looking for other than that someone is doing their thing really well. And um, that thing could be straight ahead. That thing could be avant-garde. That thing could be big band. It could be small group. It could be solo. It's like not a specific thing, but it's much more of an idea. So as a senior applying for colleges, how do I, I'm not exactly sure what you're going to ask. Something about the value of college, I'm guessing. Um but um, I will say, based on if you want to expand on your question here, I will try to answer that part of the question. But I think what you're getting at is that, yeah, you can study with anyone you want right now. But um, college is um, a little more than just that. Like the going to a school is about building a community just as much as a, as it is about um, being in a new place. Perhaps it's just as much about being in it, being like part of a scene, even if the scene is just the school. Uh, for example, you know, like at UNT, for example, like the scene is the school, you know. Uh, okay, so this is a totally different question. Glad you clarified. But anyway, so it's only one part um, of the college experience. Um, but so what he was actually asking is, how do you know we are studying with the right person? <laughs> But at any rate, I went on my whole diatribe about why, why you should pick one college over another, but that's okay. So what he's asking is, how do you know you're studying with the right teacher? Um, I think you need to study with all different types of teachers. I think you need to find someone you get along with. Steve Trey is a great example, Tony, yeah. Um, but not everybody gets along with Steve Trey. I had a great experience with Steve Trey. Um, you have to find a... a you have to find somebody compatible, you know. Um, you have to find somebody that's going to support you but also challenge you. You have to find someone that's going to inspire you in some way, you know. Like if you're studying with a teacher that doesn't inspire you in some way, maybe they're not going to inspire you every time you talk to them or every time you see them. But if their music doesn't uh, – if they, if they don't have anything that you aspire to be like, then why are you studying with them? That's my that's kind of what it is. Um, but also not every single great player is a great teacher, you know. It really it runs the gamut. But to find the right teacher, I think it's important to have teachers you don't agree with too and not to stick with the same person for too long, you know. Like one of the best semesters I ever had at Eastman was when my teacher went on sabbatical and I studied with different people. And... Uh, it really forced, it really opened my eyes to seeing things a different way. And it's really important to do that. And it's hard when you go to undergrad, like you're committing to two years, four years. And so I really like like any school where they do two years of classical and two years of jazz, because 
I mean, yeah, you could study with me for four years, but I'm going to say the same stuff to you. You know, like it's the same opinion. It's the same person, same set of years. Like I have my biases just like everybody else. And so I think two years is enough. And um, I think it's important to get other opinions and other perspectives. I really do. Because there's going to be some things you agree with and some things you don't. You know, you got to, but if you don't get out there and hear other opinions, it's really hard to determine. But you, your your experience as a, as a student, it comes from all of the, all of the teachers together. You know, it's, it's not any one person. It's like everything together. And then you can kind of pick and choose and call your own um, approach from there. There's, I mean, my teacher at Eastman, amazing, amazing teacher, Mark Kellogg, amazing teacher. Um, you know, but he primarily doesn't play jazz primarily, but I learned so much from him in terms of pedagogy, in terms of how to play the trombone, in terms of how to be around people, how to run a studio. There's like so many things, but no, like he didn't show me like killing licks to play on giant steps or something like that, you know, but you need to find a teacher that's going to push you into self-discovery. Really. That's what Wycliffe Gordon is great at. He would make you go figure it out. He would inspire you and show you what you needed and then challenge you to go and get it. You know, and so that was huge for me, realizing that it's not about the teacher. It's always going to be about you. It doesn't matter what teacher you have, because if you if you're in the middle of nowhere and you don't have a great teacher or you're in New York studying with your favorite player, it's still on you no matter what. So anyway, that was a long answer to your question. O'Brien, haven't seen you in a while. Hope you're doing well. Says with the future of live music still uncertain in the short term, how do you see this influencing the recording scene and album projects? I think everybody's hungry to get back out there. I think, um, I think, I don't know exactly what I think. I mean, I think the recording scene is always important. I think, um, I think it's always change. I mean, it's always changing. I think in jazz, like doing live records is a really interesting thing. Um, not being obsessed with perfection, being obsessed with progress or being obsessed with, being the best version of yourself and just connecting with people, I think is important. But um, I, I don't know that I see it influencing projects really, other than like, maybe it's not a good time to make a big band record because you it's going to be a while before we're able to have a lot of people on stage or have a lot of people uh, in a club and stuff like that. So maybe it's going to be all the trios, more small groups, stuff like that. Now that I'm thinking about just like the practical elements of like, playing gigs and touring and all that, you might definitely want to have like a smaller project, but that's always been the case because it's so expensive to tour that it's like you need a duo project or a trio project or something that you can kind of get out there, start to make connections with before you're touring with your own huge big band. I mean, even people like Maria Schneider and very, very successful Jazz Lincoln Center, it's very expensive to like tour with a big band, you know? So um, I think maybe it might bring those things to the forefront um, I think in terms of booking, it might be like people booking brass bands to play inside might not be super likely, you know, just thinking about aerosols and blah, blah, blah. And like all this, whatever, you know, whatever is um, proven or unproven, um, people are going to have their own opinions and people are going to be hesitant maybe to book trombone to, book, you know, they might want a guitar trio or a piano trio instead. So I think actually people, he, he, Brian, so Brian followed up and said, I was thinking we might see more albums, studio albums in these times. I actually don't see that many people recording in terms of like 
getting submissions. Like people aren't recording. People haven't been able to record. Um, I think it's going to be way down. I think 2021 is going to be a year of not a lot of albums. So if you're a new artist, it'd be a really great time to put out an album because I think there's going to be less, less albums coming out, to be totally honest, I think. Uh, there's more, maybe more space. I mean, there's always tons of projects coming out. So like the big labels are always going to put stuff out. But I think some people have either hit economic times where they're not able to make something and um, just uncertainty about the future. So it could be a good time to take advantage of um, a little less crowded landscape. Uh, so Trevor says, have you ever incorporated exotic scales in your practice? Chinese, Japanese, Hungarian, etc. cetera. Uh, I don't know what those really are. <laughs> And I don't really like that they put them into uh, this like exotic category. I would say that they're modes of limited transposition as the way that uh, Messiaen used to talk about them uh, in his book, Modes of Limited Transposition. <laughs> but uh, so no, not really. I think more about shapes over a sound or like counterpoint than I do about like some kind of crazy scale or something like that. It's just not really how I hear music. Uh, I don't really hear it. In, I hear it in terms of sounds like modes, but I don't necessarily hear it in terms of like a, like a scale, like non quote unquote, non-traditional scale, but you could also say like an augmented scale is a non-traditional scale. So I don't know. All right, man. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm going to jump off, get out, get on with the day, but I hope you all had a great after afternoon and, uh, we'll catch you next time.